6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Minor Prophets. Well, we are in hour 12 of Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, in which we're going to take a quick survey of 12 so-called minor prophets. We, of course, are in the post, uh, the exile and post-exile time period. We're going to focus in here on uh, these 12 and try to put them in perspective for you. Uh, we have Hosea, who spoke to the northern kingdom. That's confusing because Hosea came from the south, but God commissions him, as, you, as you'll see, to take a message to Jeroboam II and the northern kingdom. And Hosea's book is going to be very important because I see a real parallel between his situation and our own. Amos is also from the south going against the northern kingdom to take his messages. Obadiah is in the time of Jehoiakim, but his message really goes to the to Edomites and so forth. Jonah is preaching to the Assyrian Empire prior to them finally taking over the northern kingdom. So you need to understand that Jonah's reluctance to go there was because he was a patriot. He knew they were the traditional enemy of Israel, and we'll deal with that when we get there. And Micah is in th times of Ahaz, roughly contemporaneous with uh, Isaiah. Uh, Nahum is about a century after Jonah, but again to the Assyrians. And uh, so uh, we, uh, and then we have Habakkuk, who uh, is between uh, just after Jeremiah. See, it's confusing because the, the, the order that they're in your Bible are not chronological, nor are they clustered by the people to whom they were speaking. The order is what it is. Uh, so we have uh, Zephaniah, who is uh, well before uh, Jeremiah, between Isaiah, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Haggai is uh, one that speaks to the uh, uh, rebuilding of the temple in the days of Ezra. And uh, Zechariah is in the days of Nehemiah, just prior to the end. Much He says much about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then we have Malachi, who closes the Old Testament period. So that's a little confusing, perhaps. But the order in your Bible are neither chronological nor geographic. Uh, this, is, this is an attempt to sort that out. You can review that at your leisure. Following Malachi are 400 years, sometimes called the silent years, between the Old and the New Testaments. But they're not really silent because, as I've mentioned before, they are detailed for you in the 11th chapter of Daniel. They're written down in advance in large measure. But let's get to Hosea. His focus is the apostasy of the northern kingdom. And he was to the northern kingdom what Jeremiah was to the southern kingdom, in a sense. And uh, from Jeroboam II to the Assyrian invasion is approximately 50 years. Uh, between the death of Jeroboam II uh, the, and the Assyrian invasion, uh, while Hezekiah still uh, ruled in Judah. He murdered uh, the son of Jehu, which ends the Jehu dynasty. Then Shalom slays Zechariah, who only lasts six months. Then Manheim slays Shalom, and Pekah kills Bechaniah, the son of Manheim, and then Hoshea, 
uh, slays Pekah. So you've got just murder after murder after murder, uh, dynasty after dynasty after dynasty continuing. So you've got what? One, two, three, four, five, six, there's six, six or seven dynasties right here in this profile. Golden calves were, of course, erected at Bethel and Dan. They're originally just symbols, but they, of course, lead to nature worship and child sacrifices and so forth. Uh, just as we are today, same thing happening. They sacrificed their children on idols of bronze. Uh, we found a way to sacrifice children in the most holy place of all, the womb of the mother. But uh, the book of Hosea, the first few chapters are a prologue where he takes a, uh, a, an adulterous wife and through whom he has three children that God names prophetically, has them named prophetically. His focus of his book is national sin, that it's intolerable and that it will be punished. That's basically his theme. In the prologue, we have this, his, his wife by the name of Gomer. But uh, she, her, first, her first child is um, named Jezreel, which means either scattered or sown of God. These are homonyms, really. Uh, in other words, words that sound alike but mean different things. God will either scatter or God will sow in a constructive sense. The, house, the reigning house of Israel succeeded to the throne through blood of Jezreel. Um, it was the site of uh, Jehu's ruthless massacre of the house of Ahab in Jezreel. That's in 2 Kings, as we talked about it there. And in the future, it would be the scene of Israel's ultimate military demise. It, Jezreel is the plain of Esdralon. It's uh, 10 miles in breadth from the Mediterranean at Mount Carmel, roughly, to the Jordan, from the Galilee to the mountains of Ephraim. It was the great battlefield of Gideon, you may recall. It became a symbol of national disgrace and defeat, as it had been after Saul's death. And of course, it's also proximate to the Battle of Armageddon, so it's a very key site. But uh, then he, the two children are named Lo-Ruamah. Lo, Lo means no in Hebrew. Lo-Ruamah means unloved, and the other one is not my people. So he, uh, God has Hosea name these two children to represent a prophetic message of speaking of Israel. You're unloved and you're not my people. This is God's way of getting their attention. The good news, so I don't leave you with that, before it's over, God will say, then will I say to them, which were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. So that'll be repaired before it's over. They will become Ruma and Ami rather than Lo Ruma and Lo Ami. But Hosea's message is one we really want to understand. No other messenger gives so complete an outline of the ways God deals with his earthly people. God suffers when his people are unfaithful to him. It's astonishing to realize that the creator of the universe can suffer, can be grieved. You know, people say, the Holy, you, know, you think of the Father and the Son, what about the Holy Spirit? We tend to think of the Holy Spirit as sort of a, a force or something. No, it's a person. The Holy Spirit loves you. How do I know that? Because he's grieved. He, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. These, these personages have feelings. God suffers when his people are unfaithful to him. But God cannot condone sin. That's one of the restraints on his nature. God will never cease to love his own, and consequently, he seeks to win back those that have forsaken him. That's the message that comes through, that God cannot condone sin, but he does seek to win back those that, will, that, that, that have forsaken him. 
Now the northern kingdom, we need to understand the northern kingdom to understand where we stand. The northern kingdom had the, under Jeroboam II was one of the most prosperous periods in their history. Their standing army had recovered all the territory previously lost. They enjoyed un unparalleled material prosperity. Many of them had two homes and so forth. If you read through the text, you'll recognize they're very, very prosperous. From their point of view, it was the best of times. God's indictment, he has Hosea from the south go up there to give him his indictment. And accuses them. They had exchanged their loyalty to their heritage for pagan worship. Well, that makes me uncomfortable. That makes you, aren't we doing the same thing? The results in the northern kingdom was the lowest ebb of immorality they'd ever seen. Widespread adultery, social injustice, violent crime, religious hypocrisy, political rebellion, selfish arrogance, spiritual ingratitude. That's the whole ball of wax. The worst it was, had ever been. So this is their predicament. It was the best of times in their eyes, but it was the worst of times in God's eyes. You can't help but be reminded of the opening line of Charles Dickens' famous novel, Tale of Two Cities. Best of times, it was, at the same time, it was the worst of times. All how you look at it. <coughs> Hosea's message is to let them understand how it looks to God. Although a loving and caring God had provided their abundance and prosperity, their sin, disloyalty, and abandonment of Him will force Him to vindicate His justice with judgment. Oh boy. Thus, God is going to use their enemies as His instrument of judgment. Shortly they will be history, and shortly they were. Not long after Hosea's message, the Assyrian Empire wiped out the northern kingdom. God used the Assyrians. These are sinful people, but God uses painted instruments to accomplish His purposes. As if Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no love, no truth, no intimate knowledge of God in the land. This verse summarizes the situation in the northern kingdom that, that uh, in God's eyes. It also provides the backbone verse for my wife's ministry. She published a trilogy of books that have become classics in each of these areas. The Way of Agape, that's understanding God's love. Be transformed, understanding God's truth. And Faith in the Night Seasons, which is understanding God's intimate knowledge. So this, this became her trilogy, and, and uh, it has been taught all over the world. So you can check that out if you're interested. But the question about Hosea that I have to insert here, is there in a parallel to America? You know, our stock indexes are unprecedented highs in general. The people are buying their third and fourth cars. Almost every home has a computer. It's hard to find anyone without a belt uh, uh, with a phone hanging on it. Fuel costs less than the water we drink. <laughs> Think about it. You buy bottled water, it's more expensive than your gas. Isn't it? But anyway, we would generally, many people argue, it's the best of times. It's the best of times in our sight. I wonder how it looks to God. Homosexuality is just an alternative lifestyle. We murder babies that are socially inconvenient. We change marriage partners like a fashion statement. We've abandoned the sanctity of commitments in all of our relationships. Not just marriages, in business. It used to be on Wall Street, my word is my bond. 
Today it's so sue me. Even if you're an accountant, if you're one of the referees. God rebuked Israel for their brutality, their murder, and their warfare. We've had Waco, Columbine High School, and so on. New York City has recorded more crimes than England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Switzerland, Spain, Sweden, the Netherlands, Norway, Denmark, combined. One city and more than a half a dozen countries. Immorality and deceit have also come to characterize the highest offices of our land. Our politics have condoned and covered up more murders than we dare list. Our public enterprises have been prostituted for the convenience of the elite. Our media unabashedly promoted, knowingly promoted falsehoods to try to topple a sitting president during wartime. Our entertainment industry celebrates adultery, fornication, violence, aberrant sexual practices, and every imaginable form of evil. They, they contrive things to make a market. They celebrate these things. They're just We've become the primary exporters of all that God abhors. When you see a movie star abroad bashing America, realize that her profit, he or she, their profitability hangs on the foreign movie rights. Think about it. Follow the money. So from God's point of view, you could argue it's the worst of times. Hosea's message to the northern kingdom was, although a loving and caring God had provided their abundance and prosperity, so ours, their sin, disloyalty, and abandonment of him will do what? Force him to vindicate his justice with judgment. Thomas Jefferson said it. I tremble when I recall that God is just and that his justice will not sleep forever. And so Hosea's message was God is going to use their enemies as his instrument of judgment, and shortly they would be history. I wonder if that's true of us. The great mystery I run when I travel across the country, the question I get most often asked, why hasn't God judged America? Billy Graham summarized it several decades ago by saying, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a good summary. And I think, uh, I, I can, I think Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3 is the key to our uh, umbrella. So, let's change the subject a little bit, get back to Hosea. There's a, there is a dictum you learn in seminaries that gets overemphasized. So many of these things are true, but can be overshackless. You'll hear many competent scholars tell you that every verse has to be taken within context. It is context, context, context. And that's certainly true to a, to a point, and yet there's some very provocative lessons as we learn from the Scripture. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, it says, And there was until the death of Herod, uh, uh, this is when Joseph and Mary go down to Egypt with the baby, because Herod would killed all the babes in Bethlehem. They, and it was there until the death of Herod that might be fulfilled, which is spoken of by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. So Matthew's saying that phrase, he's quoting from Hosea, is referring to Jesus Christ. Out of Egypt I've called, that's why they're down there, so, so it fulfills this prophecy. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Well, that sounds pretty good until you get going to Hosea. Here's where he was, he's quoting from Hosea 11. 
When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. What it's talking about in Hosea 11 is the nation Israel. Yet Matthew is applying it messianically. I'm not saying Matthew's wrong, obviously, he knows what he's doing, but it's teaching us a lesson. There are places where you're dealing here with a double reference. The context of Hosea 11, wouldn't, you'd never dream that it was messianic, it's talking about the nation Israel. But Matthew perceived in that a prophecy that was also true of the Messiah, because the Messiah was called out of Egypt, and Jesus was. He fulfilled that specification. There's all kinds of specifications that Jesus complied with that many people aren't even aware of. This is, but the lesson here is to recognize that when you, talk, when you want to talk about context, the ultimate context is the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God, not just the local verse itself. Now, there is a period called the time of Jacob's trouble. We talked about earlier uh, what has to happen there. In Hosea 5, verse 15, there's a very key verse to reflect on. It's the last verse of Hosea 5, where God says, I will go and return to my place. Well, for God to say that, He must have left His place in order to return, right? So it's obviously alluding to Jesus Christ. I will go and return to my place till, there's that one of those magic words again, till they acknowledge their offense. That's singular and specific. There's a specific offense they need to acknowledge, namely the rejection of their Messiah. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. The word uh, sometimes translated early could mean earnestly, intensely. But the purpose of the tribulation is to drive them to the wall to acknowledge their offense of having rejected Jesus. When they do, when they acknowledge it and repent of it, He will return in power and set up their kingdom. That's what's going to be at Daniel 12 that Jesus quotes from, to name it the Great Tribulation, is from Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since it was a nation, even at that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found, written in the book. So Israel will be delivered. This is a commitment in Daniel 12 to Israel. And it ties to the Hosea 5.15 passage. There's another thing to learn from Hosea in chapter 12, verse 10, where God through Hosea says, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Use similitudes, huh? What are the similitudes? Well, these are rhetorical devices. There are allegories, there are analogies, there are metaphors, there are similes, similitudes, types. These are all different kinds of figures of speech. I've listed here just a half a dozen of them. There's actually 200 different kinds of figures of speech cataloged in the appendix to our Cosmic Codes book. But just understand that God does use, the Holy Spirit does use rhetorical devices. And Hosea 12.10 is your authority. God uses similitudes and all the rest of these. What are similitudes? Well, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's a, 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 excuse me, a simile. The good shepherd, that's a simile. The lily of the valley. A root out of a dry ground, we saw. The fruitful branch. He was without form nor comeliness, yet altogether lovely. These are, in effect, the employment of similes. There are also things called types. 
These are more ambitious kinds of things. The Ark of the Covenant is a type of Jesus Christ. You need to understand why. Study it and find out why. The sacrifices on the brazen altar are anticipatory of Jesus Christ. The mercy seat in the sanctuary, the propitiation of Jesus Christ. The water from the rock, 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul tells us that the water from the rock was Christ. The rock that followed him was Christ. Twice they get water from rock, and there's a whole study around that. The manna from the sky. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the living water. See, these are all types of him. The brazen serpent lifted up. Makes no, no sense in Numbers 21 when you run into it there. And yet Jesus explains it to you when you get to John 3. As Moses lifted the, the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. It's a type, an anticipatory type. The Akedah we study as the ultimate type. The Passover lamb. And of course the scapegoat. These are just examples. There are books that catalog types in the Bible. There are hundreds of them. Some very overt, some very subtle. Well, let's get to the book of Joel. We'll shift now. We've got, we got 12 to get through here. Yeah, he's alarmed by invasion of a plague of locusts. He talks a lot about that. And it's God's appeal. Turn ye to me and I will restore. Basically, is the message of Joel. The day of the Lord is a key phrase in the book of, in the book of Joel. The day of Yahweh, as the rabbi might pronounce it, or Yahweh, if you will, or whatever. End of the present age and the unprecedented plagues that will associate with it. He says a lot about the army of locusts, locusts from the north. That's strange because they usually come from the south. He says they're like horsemen. That's interesting. They're like chariots. They're like men of war. I wonder why they're compared to real ones, interestingly enough. My great army, Amos and Revelation use that same term. A very key thing to understand, the locusts have no king, according to Proverbs 27, verse 30. That's going to give us a, a discovery here when we get to the book of Amos. But one of the quotes from Joel is that Peter takes that's been widely misunderstood. Because in Acts chapter 2, when the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to the church, church is born in effect, some people thought they had drunk too much liquor or something, because they're all, you know, babbling in different tongues and so on. Peter quotes from Joel in his speech. He says, For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 in Acts chapter 2. He says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And uh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood and before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Joel's language is pretty extreme. And yet, Peter is quoting Joel as explaining what happened in Acts 2. And some people are confused by that because, gee, where's the vapor and smoke and these wonders in heaven and earth and so forth and the, the moon turned to blood, etc. What he's saying is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is started in Acts 2 and it, it will continue in various forms right up until the day of the Lord, formally. And so this is a quote from Joel and uh, it ties 
the period that we're in since Acts chapter 2 as the bridge to the big climax, which is right on the horizon. That's coming. Just as certain as it happened in Acts 2, it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. Do you follow me? This is the, Joel's, Joel's uh, expression encompasses the entire period. Let's go to Amos. He was a rustic from uh, Judea, but he also was a prophet to the northern kingdom. He's from Tekoa, which is south of Bethlehem, so he's from the southern area, from the wilderness of Judea. This is where David had his refuge from Saul and so forth. He's a layman. He's a man of the fields. He's not a trained prophet, and yet he's sent up there to Bethel, the center of calf worship and all of that. So Amos is a tough dude. Um, he, of course, focuses on the ultimate rule of David, which is not a popular message up there. He mentions a judgment against what he calls burdens, eight, eight burdens, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. He takes the Gentiles first. He goes right around their world and takes against them, but then he turns. See, bear in mind, he's talking to the north. So he goes through all their enemies first. Oh, they're applauding. Yeah, get, let's get those guys. Goes to Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. Then he talks about Judah, the place he came from, his own, the southern kingdom. Yeah, they're still... But then he gets to Israel. That's his target. He has three sermons and five visions. And, uh, and he, but he has, a, a, along the way, he makes a number of interesting comments. One of, Amos 3.7 says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. That's quite a statement. That means that everything God is doing, you will find in the Scripture. Surely the Lord God will do nothing but that which He reveals to His servant, the prophets. But there's also a discovery I want to share with you, because I think there's some lessons in it. In Amos chapter 7, verse 1, your English Bible is translated from Masoretic text, and it reads as follows. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, He formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Really? What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.